What I'm going to talk about today is going to be about child growth as a measure of nutritional quality. And the overarching theme is biological plasticity and human growth and development. Now, the most common use of child growth data has been formalised into something called uh, child growth references that are used as measures of nutritional status across the planet. You have measures like weight for height, weight for age, height for age, and body mass index, body mass index for age, things that we kind of internalise and use as uh, you know, everyday metrics. And what I want to do is to talk about this particular quality of humans, um, which is the flexibility in growth patterns of being able to respond both to times of nutritional inadequacy by stopping growing and respond to times of nutritional plenty by growing faster than ever um, as um, something that has been instru instrumentalized in uh, understanding um, nutritional ecology. So, on the one hand, we have this, child growth as a measure of nutritional quality. You also have it as an environmental outcome. Years ago, um, I was working with people who were looking at growth in rats. And one particular quality of rats, rat growth, that distinguishes it from humans, is if you, if you expose a rat to undernutrition and then give it lots of food, you know, while it's, while it's in its growing phase, uh, it doesn't respond like humans do. An undernourished rat, when given lots of food subsequently, doesn't increase its skeletal growth. It will, however, increase its soft tissue growth, and what it'll do is become a fat rat. So humans have a particular quality, um, which is, in an evolutionary sense, a very useful one. It's one that allows humans to be able to respond to times of famine and times of feast very flexibly. And what I want to do across the next 45 minutes is to map out some of these characteristics as human life history through genetics and peopling and microevolutionary processes that result in differences across the world's population, some of which have been formalized in terms like race and ethnicity, both loaded terms, but it's the kind of thing that people in epidemiology, for example, in sociology, in planning, and so on, use to describe differences in human populations. I acknowledge the problems of reifying these terms because life isn't that simple, but there are clear physical differences among different populations in the world. And some of these can have great practical importance. For example, the fact that people in East Africa, pastoralists in East Africa, tend to be, have the potential to be as big as African Americans, have much longer legs relative to trunk, and when you assess their nutritional status, you don't know whether you're actually measuring undernutrition or not. That was a very real debate that involved anthropologists in determining whether one could use international references for assessing the nutritional status of uh, Africans under famine conditions in, uh, uh, from the uh, 1980s onwards. If you want to know the answer to that, the answer is 
Um, really, there's little difference up until about the age of uh, uh, five or six. And so if you're just looking at young children, you can use international references. That's the shortcut answer, but that debate ran for over a year. Then we have the issue of developmental plasticity. It's good in a sense, but there are also negatives that attach to having that kind of biological flexibility. And then finally, I'm going to give examples of other kinds of environmental stresses that impact on child growth. Nutrition is powerful in its effects on child growth and on embodiment. <laughs> we know that in the world there are many um, uh, uh, malnourished children and they're determined on the basis uh, of, uh, of these kinds of measurements. So to begin, to think about life history characteristics. This is a slight reframing of something that came up in the What's the Natural Human Diet talk last week, in which we have a, a picture of, the, of human growth um, as uh, classified, I suppose, through, um, uh, through psychological piaget and developmental psychological constructs. So infancy, childhood, juvenility, puberty, and adulthood. Infancy is fairly straightforward. Infancy is the period of time that a, that a child is breastfeeding in the natural environment. What is new about humans relative to other primates, other to, or to, relative to other species, is this period of childhood, this period of extended um, dependency on one's parents. And that has been argued to be you know, of uh, significance in preparing individuals for living in a highly socialised uh, environment. So socia uh, there's a lot to learn, and particularly a lot to learn in relation to being a social being. So the period of, period of childhood. We have a childhood, we have a puberty, <coughs> and this childhood and puberty, according to Barry Bogan, Barry Bogan phoned me up last night, he's a good mate. So he's... Uh, left Michigan and is now in the UK. So that's good news for us. Uh, around the time, in evolutionary terms, two million years or so, with Homo habilis, you get the insertion of childhood. There comes some evolutionary advantage to big brains. But big brains don't just come on stream. Big brains have to be prepared. You have to boot up a big brain. And childhood is something that became useful in terms of maximising the utility of individuals of big brains and their smartness. Smartness doesn't just happen. Smartness is something that, that develops. The other thing that happens around that time, maybe a little bit later, uh, is the emergence of adolescence. And adolescence has been argued about. And the... <clears throat> Usefulness of adolescence in uh, prolonging, uh, 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 prolonging, prolonging growth, the change in the adolescent uh, uh, pattern of growth such that uh, pelvic development in females uh, takes priority over ovulation, and all in relation to um, the evolution of a species that has a small number of smart, successful offspring. So all of these things are, you know, in many ways, peculiarly, uh, peculiarly human. 
So that's the first thing. When we think about uh, child growth, we have to get from a newborn infant who may be born of reasonable birth weight or maybe of lower birth weight because the mother's malnourished um, to an adult. And really, all of these things are important, getting from that stage to that stage to uh, uh, to be a successful human. In evolutionary terms, the narrative is that as a species we came out of Africa. It's a narrative I happen to believe. But there are dissenting voices that see um, an Asian origin of, of, of humanity. Um, but I'm not, it's not part of uh, uh, today's uh, uh, story to talk about, uh, talk about those narratives. But the out-of-Africa narrative is that there were basically two migrations... And that resulted in a peopling of the world. This is a very crude picture because there's a great debate over, you know, was there, what was the root of this migration? You know, did it come through Europe first? Did it go through the Middle East first? There are people who argue that, you know, a coastal migratory route is actually more likely to be successful. People like Stephen Oppenheimer who argue coastal migrations. Regardless, we end up filling the world in one way or another in... um, in, uh, in, in different numbers, but the principle here is that many of the differences that we see in the physical characters and the growth characters of the world's populations now are microevolutionary things that have happened uh, in the more recent past or would have been the outcome of population bottlenecks in the past. So, according to Marta La and Robert Foley, uh, we have a picture of, of human, human evolution where we have a population bottleneck um, at around 120, 130 years, uh, years ago. And then we get continental expansions in which you know, there's selection going on maybe around 40,000 years ago. Why is this important? It's important because when one looks at human variation, human physical variation, and says Africans, for example, and expects Africans to be in some way homogenous, the out-of-Africa picture, the out-of-Africa genetic picture, um, like here, suggests that there would have been huge population diversity in Africa. There continues to be huge population diversity in Africa that far exceeds the physical diversity across the rest of the planet. To homogenize Africans is to misrepresent Africans. The science, regardless of, of whether you're using local views of, uh, of ethnicity and identity or using scientific ones, it misrepresents Africans. But you have the shortest populations on the planet, you have some of the tallest populations on the planet. From the Mbuti, who would be traditionally classified as pygmies, um, to the Tukana pastoralists, you have some of the greatest diversity on the planet. Tukani, Tukana pastoralists are not too dissimilar in stature from African-Americans who live in the best of possible uh, nutritional circumstances. When we look at um, this, di- uh, this diversity in terms of genetic phylogenies using, uh, using DNA evidence, we have these two bottlenecks again. What we have is one set of Africans, the majority, were the first out-of-Africa expansion, and then happening about... Here and then the second 
where you have the common origin of European, Asian, Australian, New World peoples around 40,000 years ago, um, and a second divergence with a smaller uh, a group of a group of Africans. Um, in biological terms, genetic diversity in humans is small relative to most other species. Compared to chimpanzees, pretty well live in Africa unless they're in a zoo. Um, there's much less genetic diversity in humans. It's not even interesting for zoologists to think about humans as, as a hugely diverse species. But when we think about humans and we think about the stresses that humans are put, ecological stresses that, under which humans are put in the contemporary world, then it's certainly very interesting to us. The most interesting subject to a human is a human, if not themselves. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the divergence of expression of genotypes in, in different, uh, different environments that have made complex the idea of one size fits all in terms of nutritional assessment. There is a World Health Organization classification that is a, a one size fits all classification for weight, for height, for height, for age, body mass index and so on. And this has been challenged in recent years. And the reason it's been challenged is because there are some peculiarities out there. I'm going to focus a little bit on people from South Asia, uh, a little bit on uh, African populations, <coughs> and then a little bit um, on Asian populations more generally, and um, just talk about body mass index of Pacific Islanders. In sum, the microevolution of recent human life history and present-day child growth creates a number of differences. Africans, I've said, from the shortest to the very tall. We have something that's been called the South Asian paradox. It's not really a paradox, but that's how it's appeared in the literature. That if you're born in India, you can be born at low birth weight relative to European populations but your risk of death is considerably less than it would be if you were a European and born at that birth weight. You have the idea of hypomorphism, small body size, which were taxed nutritionists for many, many years. The last um, head of nutrition at the Food and Agriculture Organization, Prakash Shetty, uh, worked for many years in Bangalore in India create the best physiology lab, nutritional physiology lab in the developing world. My early years when I was going to India were largely to go and, go and, go and work with him. And they found that people could have smaller body size, lower food intake, and yet be more efficient in doing physical tasks, have lower basal metabolic rate than Europeans. So there was an element of adaptation to local circumstances. But it's not something that would suit a dominant global ideology of everybody has should have equal provisioning. It creates uncomfortable uh, uh, discord in that kind of in that kind of global debate. And yet the Indians would argue we are different, and they would be arguing from you know the top institutional level. So it's an uncomfortable argument. You have a, a large country in which um, uh, they're saying, well, actually. Our small body size is not a bad thing. You know, in the 1984 Ethiopia famine, um, India prided itself being able to send food aid 
to Ethiopia. It's not just biology, it's not just anthropology, it's politics. Body size is political. <laughs> then Pacific Islanders. Yes, they're large. They're big people. Uh, for a given body mass index, they carry more muscle. Therefore, for a given body mass index, they also have lower health risk. And then Australian Aboriginal body proportions, longer legs relative to the trunk, and puberty among Asians, also earlier than among, uh, among most of the world's populations. These are uncomfortable facts, if you will. Now I'm going to give examples of those different ones with a little bit of data. There's a great growth of the Akka uh, in Central Africa, in the Central African Republic. Most people have a pubertal growth spurt. The growth of Akka is not far different from the growth of most Africans across early life, up until about the age of eight years. After the age of eight years, however, they simply don't have a pubertal growth spurt. This lack of a pubertal growth spurt is genetic. It's down to one gene, insulin-like growth factor receptor. So one particular genetic adaptation that's taken place in one particular population that has not been replicated in any other population on the planet. But if you're talking about diversity and growth patterns, here's something that is very peculiar, something that is very different. So they end up short because of a lack of puberty. Increased nutrition across puberty won't give them a pubertal growth spurt. You're more likely to make them obese. On the other hand, we have um, data from Michael Little at uh, State University of New York, who has demonstrated that Takana pastoralists of East Africa, Maasai, Tutsi of East Africa, all have these kinds of growth trajectories. Now, the solid line we have on this chart are U.S. African Americans, who are on average a pretty tall population. So even in males and females, even uh, people who are living under harsh conditions in East Africa are able to have growth trajectories that are not dis too dissimilar from African Americans living in Washington, D.C. The South Asian paradox best exemplified, I think, by looking at a measure of nutritional status like weight for age and mortality rates. Many years ago, I was involved with Peter Hayward in Papua New Guinea in piecing together, as a lowly research assistant, uh, piecing together the mortality curve for, for Papua New Guinea. What they found, which is this curve here, was that once children fall below 60% of weight for age on a growth chart, then their risk of dying across the two years prospectively uh, is about double that um, if their weight for age is, is higher than that. That gives us some physical, functional measure of what these growth measures actually mean. Nobody wants children to die. And if you can say, you know, if your child's below this level, their risk of dying has doubled. That's a very hard number you can, you can, you can use in public health context. In Tanzania, the values are, are, are even higher. In Malawi, the values are higher. But what's interesting is the data at the bottom, which is 
India, Bangladesh, that show the relationships to be much, much weaker. You can be of lower body size at birth and in childhood, and the risk of dying is a lot less, which suggests, again, microevolutionary processes um, that and strong selective pressures for smaller body size across, across prehistoric times. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but this has happened. The potential for larger body size among South Asians, however, is incredibly considerable. Okay, it's a lot. Uh, my favourite example is always cricket. Sorry, the Pakistan team um, is halfway up the league these days. And I looked at the International Cricket Council ratings yesterday. And India is apparently the top international team of the moment. They've won more test matches relative to all the others. I thought it would be South Africa followed by Australia. No, it's India followed by, uh, followed by South Africa followed by, uh, followed by Australia. You can't pay, play cricket if you're not a big person. Large body size also of, of South Asians happened in the UK, in the United States, in Canada... So the potential for large body size is there. So you have two extremes. But the fact that you have the South Asian paradox, small body size can be adaptive. When you're exposed to better conditions, there is also greater risk of metabolic disorders, obesity and diabetes. And one of the things that feeds the South Asian paradox also is feeding the diabetes epidemic in South Asia. The two things, the two things are linked. And Pacific Islanders. We have the relationship between body mass index and adult mortality placed on an arbitrary scale here, but the evidence is that um, above a body mass index of 25, your risk of, of, of dying increases slightly. Body mass index more than 30, it increases substantially, and it carries on increasing exponentially until you're severe beyond severe obesity. And beyond that, it starts to drop off because people themselves start to drop off and die. If you're from China, if you're from Hong Kong, if you're from India, then the cutoff, for, and Korea, I should also add, uh, the cutoff point for body mass index is much lower. The first one is 23 for overweight. For obesity, the cutoff is 27. That is the risk associated with a body, particular body mass index if you are either from the South Asian subcontinent or the Asian continent is considerably lower at any given body mass index. Pacific Islanders, on the other hand, um, can have a higher body mass index for the same, for the, for the same risk. And this is a woman from Aitutaki, somebody that I was researching with, um, in Melbourne, Australia. And, yeah, she's clinically obese. Puberty, something that is everybody has a perspective on because everybody's had one, unless you have come from Central Africa. There is an age of peak height velocity. That is, there's a time when growth is running away, adolescent males um, spend half their life in the fridge, and have a great relationship with it. And at that time, they don't seem to get fat. They just seem to grow and grow and grow. And uh, that age, on average, in, in Europeans is between 13 and 14 years. We look at 
populations of African origin, people from South Asia, Latin America, although the data are sparser, that age is pretty much the same. But when you start to pull together the data from um, Hong Kong, China, Korea, um, Japan, the age at peak height velocity is much lower. One of the reasons it's been argued that the Asians have had you know, smaller adult heights is because of this earlier peak height velocity. That is, growth will finish earlier. That's a very partial truth, a very partial truth, because there are other things, other things going on. Now, you can't argue that these rates for Europeans are going to come down, because they're as low as they're going to be now uh, in the human design. Peak height velocity, there's data on the decline in that age going back to uh, the 19th century across... Uh, across a number of countries, and it's been declining in, 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 in most of these countries. So these values are not going to drop any further. These values, however, the Asian values, might drop further. So this is another very clear, um, uh, very clear biological, bi biological difference that gets away from our one-size-fits-all model. Now I want to turn to flexibility in the human growth pattern. In a stylized way, the modern growth pattern has two humps to it. The first is childhood growth, the second is pubertal growth, and then it kind of finishes around the age of 18 years, more or less. The natural growth pattern, however, post-agricultural growth pattern, may be different to that. There may have been a time when populations in Paleolithic times, could have had growth trajectories that were not far off the modern one. Not quite, but not far off it. And then, with the origins of agriculture, you would have had a growth pattern that was severely, severely deviated from that. And it's a growth pattern which is very common among much of the world's populations, where there is inadequate nutrition, where there's infection, and so on. The growth references have been formalized into growth charts. Illustrations of these, the UK has growth charts for um, uh, young infants from, 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 from birth, if you will, um, up until two years of age, uh, for weight, for length, but also head circumference. That's a useful, useful measure because that can help you understand um, growth retardation as a fetus. And after two years of age, um, for weight and height, but also body mass index. So they represent kind of normative patterns for population. And the problem with this is that the normative pattern usually has been measured. Some population has been deemed ideal and has been kept ideal. Now, I've been involved in World Health Organization wrangling over, over these references. And... The problem with an ideal population is that it's ideal. People rarely live in ideal circumstances. The American growth references were initially put out in, well, there have been many, but the ones that were used internationally were 1977. And it's been argued that this was a golden age for child growth in the United States. In the present day, that can't be argued. In fact, people from CDC have said that if you use the present-day growth trajectories as norms, they are references or standards for obesity because kids are already becoming you know, obese you know, from, from early childhood. 
If you look at other present-day populations in the West, none of them are perfect. And in fact, informally, the most ideal population on the planet, if you're to compare yourself, was the Netherlands in, 1980, in the 1980s. That was the, the, the golden age of all growth populations. But there are real problems with the use of these because they are statistical constructs and they are developed around particular populations in which it's assumed there's some kind of ideal. And because they're statistical constructs and they apply Z-scores, Z-scores, plus one Z-score is about one standard deviation. If you're below two Z-scores or Z-scores, then you know, you're a candidate for risk. So it's a statistical argument. And these curves look beautiful. They're beautiful because they're computer-generated. Computer-generated curves can, can be manipulated. The actual data itself is quite messy. It jumps around, particularly at below at the 2Z scores and 3Z scores point. So the curves at the bottom that are used to classify people as undernourished or at the top as overnourished um, are the ones that have most um, inaccuracy attached to them. So there are real problems with these. And the other thing is that many of you will have children. Some of you have children already. I don't know. Maybe you'd know about it, maybe you don't. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but you have these charts. Let's call it the British ones. And you've got their length and you're plotting them. And suddenly they go, whoa, they don't grow at all. And suddenly up they go again and, and, and they jump around all over the place. This is an integration of what should happen. Children grow more in length in spring and summer than they do in autumn and winter. Uh, children grow in a cyclical or saltation and stasis fashion across a 30 to 60 day period. So there are periods of no growth. And then they grow more at night than they do during the day. And this is all to do with the endocrine cycles. And the endocrine cycles relate to environmental cues. People change their diet, day length changes, activity patterns change. And because children respond to these changes in the cycles, they, their growth also changes. It's a direct um, response to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, local ecologies. An anecdote, my youngest son, my eldest son rather, at the age of, at the age of four, I told him that he grows more at night than during the day, and he came without his pyjamas. Couldn't persuade him to put his pyjamas. Stark naked. This will embarrass him. He's 19 now. Stark naked. And I said, he tried to get an explanation from him, and he said, well, if I grow during the night, I'm not going to be able to get out of my pyjamas during the day. <laughs> And so he was, he was really worried about getting out of his pyjamas. So when we got him a size bigger pyjamas, he was, he was much happier. But they grow not like these charts. There's jumping up and down. There are other things that go on, of course, which are probably less stochastic because that average picture is a kind of you know, evening out of, of, of general idealised patterns. Many children in so-called developing countries are born at low birth weight, lower than you would get in the UK or the US or other parts of Europe. An average for the US, nominally between three and three and a half kilograms, same for the UK. But if, for example, we look at countries like 
Guatemala, the Gambia, Tanzania, Nigeria, where children are born at much, much lower birth weights than they are in Western countries. And we look at their growth velocity, in this case weight velocity, in kilograms per kilogram of body weight. They may be smaller, but their rate of growth at 12 kilograms per kilogram of body weight in Guatemala, 9 in the Gambia, 12 in Tanzania, 10 in Nigeria, is much higher than the 8 for the United States and the 6 for the United Kingdom. So in those earlier months, what is happening? If they're being breastfed, breastfed, breastfeeding privileges the infant. Breastfeeding is something that if a child can do on demand, takes small feeds on a regular basis, then they're meeting their own particular agenda, which is to get to a particular body size and a particular level of development. So they may be inhibited in utero, then after they're born, there's an element of catch-up growth. If you look at the overall pattern of size, you don't see it, but when you look at the rate of growth, they are growing much faster than, than European children. So there's, there's a lot of jockeying for position in the first two years of life after being born because you have the uterine environment, which is determined by the mother and her experience, and then you have the post-uterine environment in which the child is in a more general environment. The breastfeeding environment, the infant feeding environment, is probably overall the most important. And it's not just infant feeding, it's how the child is managed. You know, they're breastfed, put on the ground, they can wander around, and they're more likely to get infections. If they're kept in a, as in Papua New Guinea, in a, in a string bag and then allowed to breastfeed when they want, they're kind of detached from that general environment and so are shielded from the, the, the problems of infection. Other kinds of patterns of growth. That jockeying around in the first year of life. If a child's undernourished and they come uh, in those earliest years and life improves in some way, then they can carry on catching up uh, for the first five or six years or so, straightforwardly. This is an example of that kind of effect in Indian adoptees into Swedish families, where they were small when they came to Sweden and Swedish people are largely fit and healthy and uh, um, it's a relatively disease-free environment and they show dramatic catch-up growth of these adoptees. So the potential of those, 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 those Indian children was shown, was reflected in, in their ability to, to grow much faster when environments improved. Here's a striking example. Who said that history doesn't inform you present day? This is data from Rick Steckel at uh, Ohio, Ohio State University. And he's looked at the growth patterns of, African, uh, of, of slaves um, taken to the Carolinas and elsewhere uh, and identified something quite astonishing, that the growth patterns of U.S. slaves were actually quite dire up until the onset of puberty. And then from the onset of puberty, suddenly they were catching up and doing dramatic things. The conclusion that he drew, and which stands good to the present day, is that slave owners were manipulating the biology of their slaves. Children were non-productive, therefore underfed. You underfeed children, 
they are going to be more compliant. They're not running around, they're not making a nuisance, they're just spending all their time being apathetic because they're undernourished. When they reach the age of 12, 13 years, then they start to enter the stage of productivity. And what they did was put them straight onto adult rations. Straight onto adult rations and straight out into the fields and straight out onto work. And what Steffel demonstrated was this incredible catch-up growth that happened. That these slave owners, by manipulating the diet, were manipulating the biology and the economic productivity of their slave captives. In more general terms, and this has been demonstrated in different ways by other people, the idea that catch-up growth can only happen until five years of age, which was a, uh, a truism up until um, the uh, uh, early 1990s, was challenged uh, with, this kind of, with this kind of data. There's evidence for catch-up growth into puberty, that it's not, you know, if you've missed the opportunity to catch-up growth by five years of age, you've lost it for life. That was replaced by a much more flexible perspective, that actually beyond five years of age, many things are, are still possible. In fact, I can boast and will boast that I, I was at that meeting, and it was wonderful because there were... Uh, Reynaldo Martorell, who's dean of um, the uh, School of Public Health at Emory, who was the up-until-five-years proponent worked in Guatemala for many, 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 many years. <clears throat> He's Mexican in origin and, and, and uh, has become a, a United States citizen. And in the other corner was, was Michael Golden, who was arguing the opposite. And uh, <clears throat> it was set up by <clears throat> someone called John Waterlow, who was a nutrition guru at the time. Um, this was a meeting in 1993. And John Waterlow set them up in opposition to each other because he was, as he put it, hoping for a good fight. And the good fight didn't materialise because Michael Golden, first of all, set up the thing against this and then Reynaldo Martorell stood up and gave a very similar paper. He knew what was coming and he said, I can see the change, so I'm going to be boring and just, just accede to it. So, from that time onwards, this idea of pubertal growth also changed. But uh, catch-up growth also changed. But this is by far and away the most common pattern in the so-called developing world. That of no catch-up growth or recuperation. Poor nutrition means children grow less well, they're accommodating to a poor nutritional environment, which never improves across, uh, across their lifespan. Why does poor growth happen? Well, Leonardo Mata, um, who uh, worked on child growth and infection, showed that child growth could usually work well, go well, for the, first, for the period of breastfeeding, the first few months of life, and thereafter slip away from that trajectory, largely because of the impacts of infection. Now, prior to the origins of agriculture, uh, the major reason for uh, environmental impacts on growth would have been nutritional. That is straightforwardly energy capture, protein capture. After the origins of agriculture, when people were able to live in larger population density, when many infections became fixed in human populations, then you'd have the combined effects of undernutrition and infection. And this pattern of falling away from these idealized um, growth trajectories of the West would have become fixed um, at the origins of agriculture. And it's only in recent times that we st we've seen a reversal of that, the last hundred years. 
but we've seen a reversal of that pattern. What buffers? The implications of infant feeding. This is data on age at termination of breastfeeding and the introduction of non-breast uh, non milk solids. Typically, in most traditional societies, breastfeeding would carry on beyond two years of life. And what has happened in recent times is that one gets commercial formulae introduced, shortening of duration of breastfeeding. As women enter the workforce, fewer, fewer women are, are, are breastfeeding or they're breastfeeding for a very short period of time. If we look at the numbers, if we take a median of two and a half years as being, yes, um, is that like sole breastfeeding for two and a half years? No, it isn't. That's sole breastfeeding, but from that, from an early time, from about one year of age, people are introducing introducing solid foods. So breastfeeding, but also the introduction of solid foods. Very few societies traditionally would would introduce solid foods from uh, from the first few weeks of life, um, but it becomes increasingly common in 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 the contemporary world across the last fifty years or so. I've mentioned this catch-up thing, which surely should be a good thing, except there are functional consequences of early growth patterns. If you're born at low birth weight, then if the environment improves and you can show catch-up, then you're at higher risk of obesity, of hypertension, of coronary heart disease, of diabetes, all of these things. In France... A colleague of mine has worked on something she has called the adiposity rebound. Her name is Marie-Francoise Roland Cachira, which I expect everybody to be able to write down. And what she's demonstrated is that this adiposity rebound, you know that their kids develop puppy fat. They don't all do that, but some do, some don't. The ones that do... Um, can be graded according to the age at which they get it. Those that get it early, earlier than four years of age, have something like a three, two to three-fold greater risk of developing diabetes in adult life. That's a functional consequence of, of um, early life, early life catch-up. Similarly, children who show catch-up who've been born at low birth weight and show catch-up. <clears throat> they can show catch-up in height, but weight catches up even more. So they develop a body mass index, which is excessive, if you will, from about the age of seven years. And it's been argued that some of this increased obesity that we've seen around the planet may be in relation to this. Children born at lower birth weight showing catch-up then increase susceptibility to, to obesity. There is no natural experiment that can determine yay or nay. But it's something that will play out across the next 50 years or so. There are many stresses on human growth patterns, and I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about what they are. Nutrition we've mentioned, infection we've mentioned. But there are a number of other issues that are social and need to be, need to be mentioned. Urbanism, social class, economic status, environmental degradation, pollution, all of these things have something to play. I've shown this picture in India. 
and people couldn't believe that there were children in Britain running around with no shoes on. And that was only the 1970s. That's in a, an urban renovation area in the 1970s. I took that picture. That was, in, that was in London. These things cluster. Diet and nutrition cluster as in, you know, in, in an environmental way, as do nutrition infection. As do poverty, socioeconomic status, nutrition and infection. As do poverty and environmental contamination. As do high altitude, hypoxic stress, diet, nutrition and cold exposure. They run together. They're not single stresses. The literature might put them out as single stresses, but that's not what they are. This is an organization of these principles, and it's um, in the Bulletin of Food and Nutrition, and it's a paper of mine, and it clusters these factors into immediate factors, like diet and nutrition and disease, hypoxia, pollution, contamination, deprivation, psychosocial stress, into immediate factors. But then also you have a bunch of upstream factors like socioeconomic status, poverty, political economy, behavior, culture. All of these things are upstream of, of those particular factors. And it's important that those things are separated um, as, as causes. There's lots of evidence to suggest what kinds of diet affects nutrition, uh, affects growth and development. Energy deficiency, protein deficiency, but also protein quality. If you don't get enough of the right amino acids, then that can cause protein uh, dietary deficiency. Low fat content of diet. In early childhood, we say we all need to keep our fat content down in our diet. But young children actually need at least 30% of the dietary energy from fat in the first two years of life. And breast milk has got quite a reasonably high fat content. So it's... This is... Age contextual. Micronutrients, especially vitamin A, zinc, iron, poor dietary quality. A beautiful study carried out in the Netherlands on children of vegans. The Dutch are one of the tallest populations on the planet. Their vegan offspring, the offspring of vegans who have maintained an offspring diet, had the growth trajectory of poor Nigerian children in the Netherlands, children in the Netherlands. And that was used to exemplify poor dietary quality. And then, of course, you have interactions um, of these deficiencies. Food contamination. No, psychosocial stress. Just a very brief moment about this. There was a natural experiment carried out uh, in the 1940s where poor child growth was seen in one orphanage but not another. This, the head of a sadistic warden of one orphanage moved to the other one, and the one from the other one moved to the first one. So it was a natural crossover experiment. And what they found was the children that had a sadistic warden grew poorly, regardless of whether they were in orphanage A or orphanage B. This suggested that, you know, that stress, high cortisol levels, also impact on child growth. Social deprivation impaired growth has led to things called psychosocial dwarfism, psychosocial short stature, hypophagic short stature. All children who grow badly, when they're put into care, they grow better. 
So many of these nutrition infection effects, who's seen Slumdog Millionaire? Who's been horrified by some of the things that you saw in that movie? That, you know, you can think kids in the slums, you know, maybe, you know, life isn't that bad, but actually levels of stress can be incredible. How do you separate out the effects of undernutrition and infection from stress, from everyday stress? You have a problem. Food contamination also impacts on growth. Many places in the world, people have a food supply that is contaminated by fungi. These things that can contaminate corn, peanuts, milk, and can influence child growth in a very severe way. It's been calculated that maybe up to a quarter of the African food storage is contaminated with aflatoxins. There's another route through which growth stunting can happen, through diet, but indirectly through an infectious agent within, that, is, that, is, that is producing toxins um, that children are exposed to on a daily basis. Contamination. Being exposed to contamination. Native Americans in New York State exposed to lead, which delays their age at Menarche, delays their onset of puberty, Exposure to polychlorinated biphenyls accelerating it. You don't need to go to the developing world to find things that influence growth. In you know, there's a whole political ecology of, of pollution and contamination within 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 parts of the United States. Poverty and child growth. Poverty has severe impacts, but poverty is an upstream factor. The downstream factors are the day-to-day realities associated with poverty. Uh, undernutrition, poor dietary quality, infection, stress, you name it. The effects of nutrition and poverty need to be separated. In the literature, sometimes they're put in the same place. Very final, final. Secular trends are happening. This is Tokyo in the 1990s. People are tall already. What's happening is people are getting bigger where environmental circumstances improve. We know that in South Korea, people are getting faster, bigger, faster than anywhere on the planet. And the rate at which this secular trend is happening, this is, these are Asian populations, Japanese businessmen walking with purpose. Uh, European populations, what happened? It took 80 years for Europeans to do what Asian populations are doing in 40. The rates at which things can change are quite dramatic. But again, these are upstream factors. When we think about these, these are political, these are economic, these are to do with globalization, they're to do with industrialization of those nations. So the bottom line, children grow, they have great plasticity. We assume that growth is nutritional status. Well, it is to some extent, but not to um, the absolute maximum. And we can change child growth. Thank you.